John chapter 3. We're continuing this series uh, that I've entitled Jesus is Life, and we're going to be in John 3 all the way through Easter. This morning, we're going to be looking at John 3, verses 16 through 18 in a message I've entitled The Scandal of Salvation. The Scandal of Salvation. You've probably never heard of Roland Stewart, but no doubt many of you have seen his handiwork. Roland Stewart was born in Spokane, Washington, and his life was equal parts sad and tragic. His parents were alcoholics. His father died when he was just 10 years old. His mother died when he was in his mid-20s. He is currently serving three consecutive life sentences in California, the result of an eight-hour standoff with police in a hotel room outside of the Los Angeles airport where he held captive a hotel maid with a revolver and some stink bombs that he was lobbing at the LAPD. In the late 1970s, Stewart moved from Spokane to Hollywood because he really wanted to be a TV actor. He wanted to be on television. And after some time in Hollywood, he discovered it was a little more difficult than he thought, and he had zero success. So he had what he thought was a brilliant idea of how to get noticed and how to get on TV. He bought what was then a a new invention, a portable battery-operated television in the late 1970s, and he went to a PGA golf tournament with his television. And he would watch on television where the camera shots were going to be, and he would go to that particular hole, and he would put on a multicolored rainbow wig. While everybody else is watching the shot, he's looking right at the camera. And he followed the cameras throughout the entire tournament, and he would pop up on the TV screens all day long. Well, he got some notoriety from that, and he got a little thrill from that. So this became his full-time occupation, if you will. He used his inheritance from his parents, and he started going to every professional sports event you can imagine with his rainbow-colored wig showing up on TV. He made it to the World Series. He made it to the Kentucky Derby. He even made it, listen, to the royal wedding of Princess Diana and Charles. He became somewhat of a cultural icon. He was presented on Saturday Night Live by... um, uh, what's his name, Christopher Walken, and also on The Simpsons Show. We saw that picture. Now, sadly, in the early 1990s, Roland became increasingly erratic, and by his own admission, he was more and more convinced that the end of the world was near. You see, because after the 1979 Super Bowl, he went back to his hotel room after he was on TV. He went back to his hotel room, and he was flipping channels. And he came across a TV show called Today in Bible Prophecy. And this was a very apocalyptic, end times Bible program. And he became convinced that the end of the world was near. So what Roland decided to do was use his newfound fame for the cause of the gospel, to make everyone aware the end was near. And so he started showing up at professional sporting events wearing a T-shirt that said, Jesus saves, and holding up a John 3.16 sign. Well, he began, again, to get more and more erratic and, by his own admission, unstable. And so by the early 1990s, convinced the end was near, he began to make that message known through some very dangerous methods, uh, setting off 
fireworks at public events. A nationwide manhunt was made for him, and it concluded in that hotel room where now he's serving three life sentences. Whatever we make of the story, tragic and sad as it is, his example still kind of lives on in a Heisman Trophy winning national championship quarterback for the Florida Gators, Tim Tebow. Maybe you've heard of him. He wore in his face that eye makeup or that eye strip that said John 3.16. Funny, during this national championship game, John 3.16 was the most Googled thing that day on the search engine. It is the most Googled Bible verse, and it's not even close. Why? Why is John 3.16 so familiar to our society and our culture? Well, Martin Luther, as Brian mentioned last week, said it's the gospel in miniature. It's the gospel in miniature. So today, we're going to look at John 3.16. Again, this morning, as well as the two verses that follow, verses 17 and 18. Now, those of you who were here last week for the Sunday of our missions conference, uh, you know that was the theme of our missions conference, for God so loved the world. And our guest speaker, Brian McKenna, preached on John 3.16. And you may ask, why are you going back over John 3.16? We looked at it last week. The reason is, is because we could spend a month of Sundays and never mind the depths of this one verse. So we're going to look at it again this morning and, and hopefully get some truth, more truth about it. Now, before we read our text, I do want to make a comment about uh, something that Brian said in his message last week. He, he talked about the fact that there is a difference of opinion among New Testament scholars about whether or not verses 16, 17, and 18 are the specific spoken words of Jesus or they're the commentary of John. So, for instance, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, and the red-letter Bible has the particular spoken words of Jesus in red print, you probably have these words in red. I happen to land where Brian landed, and that is I believe this is the commentary of John, not the specific spoken words of, God, of, of Jesus. But the debate is really immaterial if you understand biblical inspiration. If you understand that whether or not Jesus specifically spoke these words to Nicodemus, it's still the word of Jesus. If you look in your Bible, if you have a red-letter Bible, you need to know the words in red don't carry any more weight, any more importance, any more authority than the words in black. Here's why. Because every single word of the Bible, whether it was written by Moses by David, by Ezekiel, by Paul, by John, or by Peter, it's all the Word of God. It's all inspired by the Spirit of Jesus, and it carries equal weight and authority. Well, having said that, let's look at the Word of the triune God, John three sixteen through 18. This is God's Word. Hear it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now, some passages of scripture are hard to preach because they are so obscure and the meaning is difficult to get to. Some passages, like this one, are hard to preach because they're so familiar. 
When we look at John 3.16, some of you may be excited and say, oh yeah, John 3.16, I've known this since I was a child. Others of you may look at it and say, oh, John 3.16, I've known this since I was a child. It depends on your perspective. But I'm praying, and my prayer has been this week, that we can look at it with some fresh eyes, and we can see what the Lord would speak to us. And particularly with these three verses, there are three truths that I want to point out that I believe give understanding to the scandal of salvation. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to think about the unexplainable passion of God. The unexplainable passion of God. Verse 16 begins with those familiar words, for God so loved the world. Now, if you've been in church at all, if you've been around Christians at all, you've heard these words perhaps thousands of times, for God so loved the world. But I think our familiarity with those words kind of loses the shock value. This is a shocking statement, if you understand it within the context of the whole Bible. God loved the world. We read that, and we hear that, and we just kind of assume, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, God loves the world. But I want us to think about what John means here when he writes, for God so loved the world. You see, when John uses the, the term world here, it's significant. The Greek word underneath this is the Greek word cosmos or cosmos, from which we get our English word cosmos or cosmos. But when John uses the word, he's not referring to the universe, as we might think of the grand expanse of the cosmos. He's talking about the world system normally. He's normally talking about the wicked people who make up the world, the rebellious men and women of this planet. We can see that, that in the very first time that John uses the word cosmos in his letter, in his gospel account. It's all the way in chapter 1, verse 10. He uses the word three times. Look at chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. John writing his introduction to the gospel says, He, Jesus, was in the cosmos, and the cosmos was made through him, yet the cosmos did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the first thing we learn about the world in John's gospel is the world rejects the Son of God. The world rejects Jesus. The world does not know Jesus. This kind of thought goes throughout the gospel. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus is speaking here, and Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus says, guess what, friends? The world, the cosmos, hates me. Go to chapter 14, verse 16 and following. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world cannot receive the Spirit of God. It does not know the Spirit of God. It doesn't have the capacity to desire the Spirit of God. Look at verse 30 of the same chapter 14. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. That's verse 30 of John chapter 14. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan is the ruler of this world. You go to chapter 15, verse 18. Look what Jesus says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. What does this mean? The world hates you, follower of Jesus Christ. Go to chapter 16, verse 20. Jesus gives a contrast 
or a response to what the, the response to his crucifixion is going to be. He's talking very plainly to his disciples about his imminent death, and look what he says in chapter 16, verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What's he saying here? He's saying, listen, when I die, when I'm crucified, my followers will weep and they will have sorrow. But what is the world going to do? They're going to throw a party when Jesus is crucified. So this is a pretty comprehensive look at how John uses this term cosmos. And that's why I say this is a scandal. When John talks about the world, he's not talking about the bigness of the world. He's talking about the badness of the world. And he says in John 3.16, For God so loved that world, the world that hates his son, the world that hates his followers, the world that is ruled by the evil one, the world that applauds and celebrates and throws a party when the Son of God is crucified, that world God loves. You see how this is completely unexplainable? The unexplainable passion of God. What a shock this is. What a shock this is. Now this begs a question. If God loves agapeo, agape, loves this world, what should his followers position towards this world be? How should we respond to this world? If God loves this God-hating world, how should we view the world? Does God love the woke mob? Does God love the LGBTQ plus minus exclamation point hashtag whatever you want to add to it groups? Does he? Does God love them? Does God love the progressives and their socialist agenda? Yes. Does God love the homeless camps that are popping up in our community, driving down our real estate values? Does God love them? Yes. God loves them. And you know what the greatest shock, the most perplexing reality of the scandalous love of God is? God loves you. That's a shock <laughs> because you know you and he knows you. He knows what you've done. He knows where you've been. He's heard your conversations. And even worse, he knows completely about the dark things that lurk in the recesses of your heart and your mind. But God loves you. And this reality is particularly scandalous when we consider it within the context of John 3, verses 1 through 15. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Nicodemus, the ruler over Israel, the member of the high court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. He would have known that nowhere in the Old Testament does the Bible say God loves the world. It doesn't say it in the Old Testament. In fact, just the opposite. God's love is directed and God's love is intentional towards the people of Israel, towards the descendants of Abraham, towards his covenant people. Jesus shows up and says, guess what, Nicodemus? God loves the world. 
So in Nicodemus' mind, God's love is national. Only the people of Israel. Only the nation of Israel. Jesus shows up and says, no, God's love is international. Nicodemus thought God's love is only local. Jesus says God's love is global. You see this? And that's completely counterintuitive to Nicodemus. And it's counterintuitive to us. That's not how we would do it. But God didn't ask our permission and who he's going to love, right? So this is the scandal of salvation. It includes this unexplainable passion of God. Here's the second thing to notice about this scandal of salvation, the unexpected plan of God. So we've seen the world hates God, the world rejects God, the world shakes its fist at God. And how does God respond? Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I want you to circle the word send in verse 17. That word is the Greek word apostello, from which we get the word apostle. An apostle is a sent one. This verb just simply means to send, literally to send on a mission. The first apostles were missionaries. They were sent on a mission. Well, this is the first Christian mission trip. The first short-term Three-year mission trip was God sending his son, Jesus, to the world. And every mission trip in the history of the Christian church is built on this first mission trip, the sending of Jesus. And what did God the Father send God the Son to do? This is the scandal. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Now, there are plenty of times in the Bible when Jesus is portrayed as a judge, as one who will bring condemnation on the ungodly. In fact, the author of this gospel, John, also wrote the book of Revelation. If you go to chapter 19, verse 11, you hear, you read, John described his vision of Jesus in the last day as being on a white horse, arrayed with the armies of heaven behind him, with a sword coming out of his mouth, his robe is dipped in blood, and he's executing the wrath of God against all the unrighteous and ungodly in the world. Jesus is judge of sinners. Make no mistake about that. In fact, even in this gospel, a little later in chapter 5, Jesus says that all judgment has been given to the Son. So when we stand before God on judgment day, we're going to be standing before Jesus. We're going to see his nail-pierced hands. He's going to be the one executing justice and judgment on judgment day. So yes, Jesus will be the final judge of all people, but that's not the purpose for which he was sent the first time. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This world, that's completely out of hand. This world that has rejected God. This world that is living according to the dictates and the whims of their own passions and desires. This world, we might think, if we were writing this story, and this is why it's somewhat shocking, oh, the world has rejected God, the world is living out of the plan of God. I know God's going to send his son to wipe them out. <laughs> but when God sends his son, it's not to wipe them out. It's to save them from themselves. 
This is the unexpected plan of God. You know, I often make fun of the Hallmark romance movies my wife regularly watches. They are ubiquitous in our bedroom television. And I would say, oh, what a surprise. The cosmopolitan career woman who got stuck in the small town falls in love with the simpleton. Whoever would have believed that would happen? Well, there's also a shocking reality. The action films that I like to watch are just as predictable, right? We know what's going to happen. We can predict them ahead of time, but they're not as sappy, so that's okay. Now, if we were watching this unfold like a movie, and we would see this, oh, we know what's going to happen. We see the whole setup. God's sending his son. We would think maybe it's kind of like Daniel's son in The Karate Kid, right? The bullies from Cobra Kai are picking on him, and we just can't wait for Mr. Miyagi to come and wax off and wax on their heads, right? We know what's coming. We might think that's going to be the consequence here when God sends His Son. But God didn't send His Son to wipe them out. God sent His Son to die for them. This is a surprise. This is a shock. He didn't send His Son with an AK-47 or grenade launchers to kill them all. He came to be killed. And we're the ones who put Him there. We're the ones who rejected Him. We're the ones who spit on Him. We're the ones who nailed Him to the cross by our sin. He came to die for us sinners. He came to take the punishment that we deserve. This is the scandal of salvation. And it's rooted in the love of God. Paul put it this way in, in Romans chapter 5. He says, For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person someone might possibly even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were sinners, while we spit in his son's face, Christ died for us. The Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, also said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent Apostello on a mission trip, his son, to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the wrath-assuaging death for us. This is love. This is the scandal of salvation. We see it in the unexplainable passion of God. Why does he love us? We see it in the unexpected plan of God. He sends his son not to kill us and wipe us out, but to die for us. And that leads to the third thing from this passage in verse 18, the unalterable prerequisite of God. I want you to notice in verse 18, there are two words that are repeated from the very well-known John 3, 16. Let's look at verse 18 again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Did you catch the two words? I kind of emphasized them. I want you to underline the word whoever, and I want you to circle the word believe. Whoever is used twice in verse 18 and believe is used three times in verse 18. 
First of all, this word, whoever, (laughs) this concept of whoever would again for the first century Jewish mind have been scandalous. The Jews were completely closed off to the concept that an idea that anyone could come and be a part of God's kingdom. No, the kingdom of God is exclusive. It's only for the Jewish people. So this word whoever is a shocking, surprising word. I wonder, is this word whoever, is it sweet to you? Whoever. We live in an age today in 2022 that can be identified and and described as being marked by extreme tribalism. You know what I mean by that word, tribalism? You've got political tribes, religious tribes, racial tribes, social tribes, extreme division in our culture because of this tribalism. And this division is becoming so stark and so extreme, you can agree with people in your tribe on 99.9% of propositions, but that 0.1%, oh, you can't be in my tribe anymore. No, 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 no. Get out of here. Extreme tribalism. And Jesus comes along and says, I do not care what tribe you're in. Whoever. Do we believe that, friends? Whoever. You need to know something. Every single tribe will be around the throne of Jesus Christ worshiping him. Every single tribe. And this division that's happening in society and culture over these minuscule disagreements because of tribalism, they will be gone around the throne of Christ. The Bible does not say God sent his son on this ultimate mission trip to save white middle-class Americans. Republicans, Democrats, minorities only. you got to have this cross-section of intersectionality before you can be considered a whoever. The Bible does not say that he came to save the rich or the poor, the educated or the uneducated, the, the people who vote like me, the people who think like me. He didn't come to save just the hip or the cool, or the people that listen to the right radio station. The hip people don't listen to radio stations, in case you didn't know that. He didn't come just to die for the people who, who look like me, who, who are athletic, who are accomplished, who are successful. He came to die for whoever. Do we believe that, church? Whoever, whosoever will, they come. I want to ask you a question. Are you a part of the whoever? That's the first prerequisite. Are you a whoever? I've got the answer for you. Everyone here, everyone watching the live stream, the people that Ricky Cope's about to preach to on the mountains of Guatemala, they all qualify as whoever's. Every single one of you is a whoever. But here's the second prerequisite. Whoever believes. Whoever believes. A prerequisite for salvation is that you must believe. Again, the word is repeated three times in verse 18. Now, here's a sad part about church history. For a thousand years of church history, this concept of whoever believes can be saved is not condemned was obscured from 
the common understanding of the gospel. For a thousand years, although there were pockets of groups here and there throughout that thousand-year period, the dominating idea and the prevailing thought was among the Roman Catholics that said, you can believe, but you also must do these things. Yes, whoever believes, but also there's these additions and addendums to the gospel. That was until this short little monk (laughs) by the name of Martin Luther. He sparked a fire of protest against the prevailing idea that, yeah, there's other things you must do to be considered forgiven and not condemned. This protest was against works-based salvation. It's called the Protestant Reformation because it was a protest against the Roman Catholic addendums and additions. During the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers, Martin Luther and others, used some Latin phrases to describe this biblical understanding of salvation. I'm not going to go through all of them. They're called the five solas. You can go look them up. But one sola I'm going to mention, sola just means alone or by itself, was this concept of sola fide, which is simply by faith alone. What sola fide is communicating is we are saved by faith alone. Apart from any works of righteousness, apart from completing any list of do's and don'ts. And so, of course, this concept of faith that we see so prevalent in the text is represented here in this Latin phrase. Believe. Whoever believes. Whoever believes. This is by faith alone. Now, what does this mean? Well, here the Reformers also used some Latin words to try to tease out the understanding of what biblical saving faith means. And I want to rehearse those with you because I think it would be helpful for us to understand. If the prerequisite for salvation is whoever believes, it'd be good to know what belief means, right? What does belief mean? Well, again, the Reformers used three specific Latin terms to help to understand it. First of all, this term notitia. This, this word simply means knowledge of specific content. We get our word notice or notification or notify from this word. It's simply saying that in order to have faith, you must have knowledge of the propositions of the gospel. This is why we do missions. This is why we do evangelism. This is why we preach, because there is content to this message. There's information that must be known. And so this is the word to identify this. People who don't know can't believe because they don't have knowledge. Does that make sense? This is the first layer of sola fide or faith alone. The second is this one, a census. A census. We get our English word assent from this word. It just simply means to have an agreement with a set of propositions. You can hear about information. You can hear the propositions of the gospel, but a census is to assent to them, to agree with them. So when we say, for instance, I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States of America. This is a propositional statement. George Washington was the first president of the United States of America, and I assent to that information. I believe it's true. People may say they're Christians, but if they don't assent to the fundamental realities of the historical Christ, they are not Christians. For instance, people call themselves Christians, but yet they deny the virgin birth. 
People call themselves Christians, but they deny the deity of Jesus. They deny his sinless life. They deny that he performed miracles. They deny that he was crucified vicariously for sin. They deny that he was buried for three days, dead for three days. They deny that he was gloriously resurrected from the dead, personally, physically, bodily. If you don't assent to those propositions, you ain't a Christian. So belief includes having knowledge of the propositions of the gospel, and secondly, agreeing with them. But friends, this is not saving faith. Here's a third word, and it's this word fiducia. Fiducia. And this means complete and total trust. We get our English word fiduciary from this word, this Latin word. And what fiduciary means, it's, it's entering into a relationship of trust. If you've ever hired an attorney, you entered into a fiduciary relationship with that lawyer. Um, last week, my son Trevor turned 16. And because he turned 16, there were two things that he was legally not allowed to do that as soon as he turned 16, he did. <laughs> Number one, he got his driver's license. So if you see a little blue Nissan Versa tooling around in our community, know that's Trevor enjoying the freedom of having a driver's license. Here's the second thing he was not legally able to do on his own, but now he is. He got a personal checking account. And his job at Zaxby's is wired to his personal checking account, and he gets money deposited there in an automatic payment, right? He entered into a fiduciary relationship with the bank. Uh, used to, banks were called bank and trust. Remember that? So this is what fiduciary means. It's trust. It's dependence. It's complete trust. And so the reformer said this is genuine saving faith. It's knowing the truths of the gospel. It's agreeing with the truthfulness of those propositions. But thirdly, it's complete and total trust. We embrace those things personally. We depend upon them. We rely on what Christ has done in our place, and we do not rely upon ourselves, our own sense of goodness, our own sense of rightness, our own sense of completing some type of moral code to be acceptable to God. Now, sadly, the unfortunate tendency is that many stop at the ascent. We could walk the streets of our community. We could walk the streets of the city, and we could ask someone, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe he was resurrected from the dead? Yes, of course I do. Have you embraced him completely and totally depend upon him alone? No, they don't. We've got many MIA members of Lookout Valley Baptist Church who we never see and they may say, yes, I'm a Christian. I assent to the truths about Jesus, but there's no evidence of depending completely upon Christ. What about the person who doesn't have this kind of saving faith? What about them? Well, again, look at verse 18. The second half of verse 18 says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The God who has unexplainable passion for us. The God who has executed an unexpected plan has this unalterable prerequisite. You must believe. Let me illustrate it like this. Many of you probably know of someone who we might describe as a cat lady, right? Some of y'all know a cat lady. You may be here and you may be a cat lady. There's no judgment here, right? No judgment at all. Uh, cat ladies in our society have been identified as those people who have 
something of an inordinate affection for the felines, right? They just love cats. Now, I want you to imagine, let's say the cat lady absolutely loves her cat, showers affection on her cat. I'm not even going to go how some of those cat ladies love their cats, but loves the cat. And this cat decides to reciprocate the love, the affection. And so she shows up at the back doorstep, like if you've ever had a cat, and likely, likely you've had a cat do this for you, a gift. What's the gift? A mouse in the mouth of the cat. Now, what does cat lady say? She loves the cat, but she hates rodents. Is she going to let the cat come in the house? No, you cannot come in the house as long as you're clutching the rodent, says the cat lady. Now, to an infinite, sorry, that's a bad illustration, maybe. To an infinitely greater degree, God says, you, I love you. I have displayed my affection towards you, but you cannot come into my house as long as you're clinging to your sin, as long as you're clutching those things that you think are so important, those things that you're giving your lives towards. You cannot come in. You must release. Now, how, how do you release that? You release your grip on your own life, on your own purposes, on your own desires, and you trust in, cling to, rely upon Jesus. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. In God's love for the world, God gave his son. He sent him on a mission. Any unbeliever who suffers for eternity in hell is not in hell because of a lack of love on God's part, but rather a lack of belief in Jesus on their part. Let me close with this. You know, one of the greatest maritime tragedies of history is the sinking of the Titanic. And one of the real tragedies about this, compounding the tragedy, was the fact that historians tell us that most of the lifeboats were only filled at about 50% capacity. They estimate that as many as 450 to 500 more people could have been saved from a watery grave if they would have just utilized every seat in the available lifeboats. A greater tragedy far greater tragedy than this is the unclaimed offer of salvation for eternity. The unclaimed offer of salvation that God will save us from death through faith in his only son. And friends, it is a sincere offer that God offers to whoever. Whoever believes will have eternal life. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have knowledge of what Jesus has done. You may have even assented to the truthfulness of those claims, but yet you've never embraced, clung to, with this saving faith, fiducia, dependence, and trust. Today, John 3.16 can be real for you. For God so loved you that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That leads to my last thought. When I believe, trust in, cling to, 
rely upon the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, I can be assured of my eternal salvation.